This is a story about stories, and we're going to start with the big story. They say that once Spider came to possess all the world's knowledge, stuffed it into a calabash, and tried to hide it in a treetop. Well, according to the story, the calabash fell, or was flung, from Spider's hands to the ground, where it shattered, and the bounty of story was fragmented and scattered on the four winds. Now the task of the storyteller, like that of the spider, is to weave the broken pieces back together. A retelling of the spider and the shattering and scattering of the bounty of story by Gail P. Jackson. But what are those stories and whose stories are they? Some are stories of the ancestors, the elders, those who have gone before. And one way to find their stories is to search collections of historical documents and records. Jenny Sharp takes us into the space and place of conventional archives. The conventional archives are material, she says, and that goes without saying. Anyone who has spent time in a repository of official records or special collections with their printed, typed, or neatly transcribed documents, handwritten drafts, and more personal papers like diaries and letters, knows that feeling of anticipation when a cardboard box, fragile manuscript, or leather-bound ledger is carried majestically into the reading room. Archives are as tactile as they are visual. To see writing on the page from the hand of a person who is long dead, or to run one's fingers along the letters on parchment that was once living skin, makes us feel as if we are actually touching the past. The description provided by Jules Michelet of history writing as an activity that liberates the dead from their entombment provokes Carolyn Steedman into calling the French National Archive a building of dreams. To enter that place where the past lives, she declares, where ink on parchment can be made to speak, remains still the social historian's dream of bringing to life those who do not, for the main part, exist. The tangible quality of archives as traditionally conceived, reinforces our belief that the past is not dead. But Jenny Sharp titles her study Immaterial Archives because these other materials do not exist in a library or physical repository. In fact, they are not in an archive at all. She explains, the immaterial that qualifies my title refers to the intangible quality of affects, dreams, spirits, and visions that are also ways of coming to know. But are these phenomena something or nothing? Do they have substance or belong to the insubstantial and unsubstantiated realm of the imagination? Immaterial Archives addresses the scarcity of documentary evidence concerning the lives of people who were discounted, disappeared, and were immaterial to those creating material archives. We'll hear now the story of a search for stories of ancestors, stories that have turned up in both material 
and immaterial archives. And Sandra Burgett Miller is determined to go wherever the stories take her. But there's another layer. If Sandra has become a storyteller, then we remember from the spider at the start that the task of the storyteller, like that of the spider, is to weave the fragmented and scattered stories back together. Sandra has taken what she knows about family history from material archives, and yes, also from what she's learned from immaterial archives, from her dreams, and woven these stories into a narrative, into a book she's titled Tell Em. M or them could suggest the stories themselves. Tell the stories with an exclamation point, or them meaning tell them, tell other people or both. But Sandra didn't stop there. It was critical for her to bring the people telling the stories to life. That would be her family and the slaves who spoke to her in her dreams. The result was Tell Em the Play, presented two years in a row at the Scranton Cultural Center, tying the fragments together, restoring shattered families, shattered lives, weaving. Sandra Burgett Miller loves Black History Month because she has so much to share. We had a chance to speak with her by phone about new discoveries along an unknown path as she follows her inner North Star. We begin her story at the beginning. You know, it all started when I was younger and I I wanted to know how we came to Scranton and, and I asked my father where we were from and he said, this is where we're from. And I said, We've been all around the world, and, and there's really not many black people here, so I just wanted to know where we were from. And he said, once again, well, this is all that I know. This is where I'm from, where I was born and raised. And so I started to say, well, we were slaves someplace. And he just kept saying, where you believe in Scranton. So I started to do my own genealogy. And in the process, I found, I found our census in Waverly, Pennsylvania in 181880. And then I found one in 1900, and then I found another one in 1860. I was so surprised because I found our our family right there on Carbondale Road in Waverly, Pennsylvania since 1860. The earlier census I couldn't find, but there's a book called This is Waverly, and there's a section called The Coming of the Slaves, and The Coming of the Slaves, there was my great-great-grandfather's name, Thomas Burkett, right there in her book, Coming of the Slaves. He had came from Hagerstown, Maryland, changed his name from Summers to Burgett through the Underground Railroad so that he would not be sought out by the people that were trying to drag them back. And once that people did come to Waverly looking for the ex-slaves, the Waverly community would chase them back out of town. So they became safe. And while I started doing all that genealogy and reading and, and looking and searching, I started having dreams, and so I started writing poems. And then I said, you know, I'm going to write a book. So I wrote a book, and then I put all the information in it. Then I put poems in it, and then I said, you know, I'm going to have a play. (laughs) So I decided to have a play at the Masonic Temple, and we took all the scenes and the beautiful poems from the book, and we put it all in action. We brought it to life. The pictures and all the people that are in the play came to life because the slave pictures that were in the book were actually my children, my nieces, my nephews, and maybe a couple of other little people I could find. And I would take them to Nayal Park 
and I would I would take pictures. I would dress them up like slaves, and I would take pictures, and, and they came beautiful. People had no idea the pictures were just from Neog. But um, basically, those people were the same people that were in the play at the Masonic Temple. And I had it two years in a row, and it just was wonderful. It came out beautiful. We were invited to Philadelphia, but with COVID, I guess everybody's on a standstill. And I'm going to hope that once COVID clears, we can continue and, and take this story further and further around the nation. You know, and I love when Black History Month comes because then I have so much, I have so much to give, so much to talk about. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about your search. As you know, you know, last year uh, I spoke of Thomas Forget running from Hagerstown, Maryland to Waverly, Pennsylvania. And my goal, or should I say my struggle, has been to find him, to find where he came from, where he ran from. And we know that he ran from Hagerstown, Maryland, but I've been searching to find what family had him because his name was Summers before he got to Waverly and changed it to Burgett. So I'm constantly searching, constantly Googling and looking in the paper. And my uncle James told me in 1994 when they spoke to me, he was 90 at that age, and he had told me that, you know, there was an elderly man at Auburn College. I was a young lad when I went there, and he told me, you know, you're related to me. Your father ran from Hagerstown, Maryland, to the Underground Railroad to uh, Waverly. So my Uncle James told me that story, and once he told me that story, you know, I never forgot it. So I always remembered Henry Howard Summers because that was the man's name who explained to him, you were related to me. So basically, I looked every once in a while for Henry Howard Summers and could never really find him. And uh, over the years, I looked, but I could never find him. I had given up. But basically, um, about two weeks ago, I just started looking up Henry Howard again, and I started finding Henry Howard Summers popping up. Henry Howard Summers graduates from Howard University. Henry Howard Summers is going to Harvard. Henry Howard Summers donates the library to Howard University. And I'm thinking, how is this? Is this the Henry Howard Summers that I've been looking for that's related to the fugitive slave Thomas Forget? And then I find the one that says Henry Howard Summers moved to Harrisburg at the age of six from Hagerstown, Maryland. And there was our connection. Then I was so excited. I was so excited because I had finally found the man who Uncle James had spoken of who told him about his own family. And I I decided that I'm going to find the man who did these stories, and I'm going to do research. That way he could tell me more about Henry Summers' family. And once I can find his family, that will lead me to my family because they're both from Hagerstown, Maryland. So basically, my daughter found his name was a Caleb Jackson Jr. So I left an email and I said, yes, this is Andrew Baguette Miller. I'm the great niece of Henry Howard Summers. And I explained the story of the Underground Railroad. And I got an email back right away. And then I got a phone call and um, he wanted to know more about the story. And so, you know, he's a 90-year-old historian, which was wonderful, because he did all those articles, and they have a book called 100 Voices. And he explained to me that Henry Howard Summers is in the book 100 Voices, and so is his sister, Anna Summers. There are people who have done outstanding things in their lifetime, 
unfortunately, Henry Howard Summers died in 1943. My Uncle James was a very young lad when Henry had told him about his family. But um, it's wonderful. We're still um, looking, and hopefully through his history, we might confine the family that got spread apart, split up. Isn't that the case, and isn't that just one of the tragedies of what slavery did in the U.S. in terms of splitting families, and some never saw each other again. Husband and wife never saw each other again. It's a cruel, cruel situation. So it is fascinating that you're able to put the pieces together. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. It can get very uh, frustrating, but uh, I don't give up. I mean, and I might sit back for a little while, but then if I find a lead, then I, I'm up and out. I'm on it. And you've said it is wonderful for you to get your family and your history out, but you also hope that what you're doing can be uh, an example or a model for other people. Definitely. I mean, I say find your, I say anybody can find their relatives. <laughs> if you have the drive, I think that people should really look, in, and especially with Ancestry.com, you could find relatives by different names, people first, second, third, fourth cousins. But I think that people should really go after their history. It doesn't even matter what race you are. I, I believe that the excitement to find your family back then or to know what they were doing or to put yourself back in the timeline that they were and just imagine you are around them and whatever they're doing is it's wonderful. It's very fulfilling. I also think it's fascinating that you call the book Tell em because you mentioned those dreams, and it was, you suggest, as if people were sort of saying to you, whispering in your ear, tell my story, tell my story, right? Yes, definitely. Um, in the middle of the night, I'd be sleeping, and then I'd dream I was asleep, and I'd jump up, and I'd start writing. And, and I just felt like people were telling me, tell, tell my story, or tell my story, and and. The dreams that I were having, I just felt that there were people trying to get their stories told. So that's where the poems came in. And I would start reciting poems, or should I say, writing poems. And a person who never was interested in poetry, I'm not even an avid reader. I mean, I'm, I'm a sports mother. I go to all the basketball games and everything. If there's, you know, if we lose electricity, I'll find something else to do. But, but it's not going to be reading. But, you know, <laughs> it's amazing. And that's why I can't believe that I ended up doing all that I have because this is, it was way out of character for me to, to do the things that I accomplished. I surprised myself. But then when I found out about Henry Howard Summers and read all of the things that he had done. Then I said to myself, oh, maybe that's where I get it from. Because he sure was a busy, busy person way back then. And you said he gave a library to Howard University, so he must have been a book lover, right? Yes, he willed the library to Howard University. Often things that he has done, and so basically, my Burgett family, I'm finding more and more things out about them as I search. Yesterday, while I was looking up, still looking for things for Thomas, I never give up, um, I entered into a new newspaper called newspaper.com, and you could look up people from any era. So I started looking up, oh, I'm definitely going to find Thomas now, and I started putting names in, and Thomas is very hard to find because he was born in 1812. So I come across another relative, it's John Cornelius Parker, and that is my grandmother Ciola's father. 
and Grandma Sciola, that's my grandmother. That's my um, that's my father's mother. And Thomas is on my father's father's side, and John Cornelius is on my father's mother's side. So Thomas ran from slavery to Scranton, and I found out yesterday that my great grandfather John Cornelius Parker ran from Scranton in nineteen twenty six or twenty eight around that time. You see, he had been working as a miner back in 1926, and there was a strike. The miners were at strike in uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania, and they had been having trouble for, I think, a couple of months. So I guess they got other workers to come in and work for them, and so I, I guess they broke the picket line and were attacked by people. So my great-grandfather, John Cornelius Parker, pulled out a gun and he shot in the air, and then he says that he took off running, he shot in the ground, and he took off running because he was just trying to get away. So he shot two shots, but he had no idea that the first shot had hit one of the people. So he didn't find out until he got home to the courts that they lived in in Scranton. And later on, he found out that the young boy, who was 22 years old, died. And see, John Parker was uh, 45. So he... He hid from people's houses to people's houses for a couple of nights before he turned himself in. Once he found out he died, then he turned himself in. And, um, you know, he, he, faced, he faced the courts. He, he faced what he did. He told his story and that he didn't know that the young man had died. He didn't know that it had hit anybody, but he was afraid and he was just trying to get away because they were starting to beat on him, and one person hit him with a stick, and so he just panicked. So he basically was supposed to, it was up to a 20-year, you know, he could have got 20 years for what happened. And the judge only gave him two and a half years. So he went upstate, and he did his two and a half years, and he came back to Scranton. But not for long did he stay, because he knew that the people were highly upset with what he had done and the time that he received that when he came back, that they would, they would get him. So he left. He left my grandmother here as a little girl. He left her to be raised with family members. And um, my grandma Ciola never seen her father again. And I found that story yesterday, and I was just heartbroken. I was like, wow, I mean, one grandfather on my mother's side and one grandfather on my father's side. And the story that comes out of our family are just amazing. Now, it's too early since you've just discovered that story, but is that the kind of thing you think you might work into another fictionalized account of some sort with a book or a poem? Well, I must say that I just like, I like my history to be told, and that's probably something that would be, uh, you know, be nice. And when you read the story and you hear him telling his story, it's amazing how he's trying to told him how it was self-defense and how he didn't mean. But he was 45, and he left the area. And uh, they even had a beautiful picture of him in there at 45, and nobody had ever seen him. And yet they have a beautiful picture, and so, you know, I had to save that. How well did you know or did you know Grandma Ciola at all? Grandma Ciola was my father's mother. We're Air Force brats. So... We lived in England, we lived in Germany, we lived in Michigan. I was born at Andrews Air Force Base. And so we traveled the world, and our grandmother and grandfather were here in Scranton. 
so when we come in town, we'd get to see them for a weekend, and they'd pray, and we'd have a little, you know, good time with them. But then we'd go back overseas, or we'd get stationed someplace. Also, I really never got to know my grandmother, Ciola, very well at all. We were always gone. And then she died of cancer at the age of 59. And I remember her. And she had a little tremble in her head. Uh, like Her head shook like a little tremble. And uh, I always noticed that when I would see her. And my father ended up with Parkinson. And I know where he got that from now. But, yeah, she passed away. She passed away at a younger age. So I really never got to know her like I wanted to. And when I come to Scranton in 1975, then that's when people started telling me about my grandmother. Oh, I used to lay on her lap in church, and she used to rub my head. I used to get so jealous <laughs> because I have all these other people telling me the things that she did for them. But like I said, I, I always heard the story about her father, you know, left town at a young age. It left her, left her and her brother. I never really looked into it. It was just something that I never really thought about until it landed in front of my face yesterday, the whole article. So I was stuck sitting in the same spot for 24 hours. I, I couldn't even go to bed. I just kept reading and looking and reading. The story was just outstanding. One more question then, Sandra. We know that you had your children and relatives and so forth, but I'm particularly interested in the young ones who took part in your photo shoots at Neog Park and then also took part in the play. What has it meant, do you think, to the younger generations to have become involved actively in your project? Well, it's amazing because the younger children that were in the play, they still can recite the poems that were in the play. The parts that they were in, they still can recite the parts that they were in. The youngest people in the play was actually my grandson, he was five, and my little nephew, who was six. They played in the part in themselves children play. They did the play beautifully. And when you watch it on the television, because it does come on Electric City TV, and it is also on YouTube called Tell em, just Sandra, forget Miller, Tell em. The whole play is on YouTube. And... If I put it on today, they would all come in there and they would sit down and they'd start watching it. They'd start running around, start playing, start saying the poems as they're hearing it on the TV. And I'm glad that they know that because it's something that they'll always know. Some of them have already done their school projects on, on their family history. Those children know a lot. They've witnessed a lot and they've got to be a part of beautiful things. And I hope they carry it with them for the rest of their life. Sandra Burgett Miller of Scranton, author of Tellum, T-E-L-L, apostrophe, E-M, Tellum, a book and a play. And she's been speaking with us about her quest to find more about her family's history and to sew the fragments together. And she has just discovered the story, the fuller story, of her other grandfather. And she will continue on her quest, and no doubt we'll hear more from Sandra Burgett Miller. If you'd like to see the play, you can find it on YouTube, and it's Tellum, T-E-L-L, apostrophe, E-M, 
and it's by Sandra Burgett Miller, B-U-R-G-E-T-T-E, Sandra Burgett Miller. And for more information, you can check the WVIA website at wvia.org, wvia.org.